We're going to be looking this afternoon at uh, six verses, verse 14 through to verse 20 of this letter to, that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And um, I guess that nothing has changed much. Uh, what we see is when Paul was uh, traveling around, we see all sorts of different responses. Uh, particularly, most kind of poignantly, we see it uh, in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, where he's uh, speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, and it prompts the kind of response uh, that has been the response of people ever since. Uh, some um, disregarded it and mocked. Some uh, thought about it and would like to think about it a little bit more. And some embraced it and believed it. And I guess that we all fall into one of those categories when we are faced with the claim of the Bible that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, uh, died, was buried, and rose again so that we know that we might rise again. We all fall into one of those categories. You might say, well, I don't mock it. Um, The Bible would say, in rejecting it, we mock it (laughs) because we consider our belief structure to be uh, of more relevance and more importance than the, than the message of God to this world. So we might not be mocking it in the sense of that outward joking response, but we do. And we always will. And I guess that when we look down through the past, um, the past years, and actually even the past few days, uh, we find that the church um, is mocked. And I would say, you know what? There's lots of reasons why the church should be mocked at times. Uh, Just in this past few days, there's been a right rumpus, hasn't there? That um, There's going to be the rapture and there's going to be people disappearing because uh, this uh, 89-year-old Mr. Harold Camping over in America has worked out that the date of the rapture, according to him, is May the 21st, 2011. And there was all sorts of response. Well... (coughs) just looking on the news um, uh, a little bit earlier uh, there's a whole group of people outside this church mocking him Uh, and I think well do you know what he deserves it he deserves it because he should read his bible where the bible says that nobody knows when this is going to happen apart from the father himself Uh, and so when people claim all sorts of crazy wacky off, off the the record kind of bizarre stuff then the response is quite justifiable, I think. In fact, he should be thankful. The leader of the uh, satirical group who were mocking him, they call themselves the satirical group, according to the news, they said it's important to mock the prophets uh, who get it wrong. (coughs) It's important to mock those that think they know uh, what they are talking about. (laughs) I think he should be thankful, this guy, because according to the Old Testament, prophets who get it wrong should be stoned. So... uh, he should be thankful that it's mocking rather than a stoning, which would be the response uh, over 2,000 years ago. But the church does come in for all sorts of uh, criticism and ridicule. One of the reasons that it comes in for criticism and ridicule is very often its response to money. And uh, if you turn on a number of channels from around about, if you're on Sky, from around, I think it was around about 700 or 760 onwards and you drift into the channels, it seems as though there is a repetitive kind of give us your money, show us the money kind of response that the church is making. And um, somebody uh, grabbed a hold of me, one of the one of my mates in the centre here, he said, you know what? He said, let me tell you what the church is like. <laughs> 
there was a guy who was dying by the side of the road. And this vicar was passing by. Now, he calls me the vicar, which is fine. Yeah. That's okay. And uh, he said, this vicar was passing by alongside. And, and uh, I turned to him with this guy who was dying at the side of the road. And I said, can, can do something. He said, well, what, what can I do? He's dying, the vicar responds. And he says, do, well, do something religious. So the vicar took a collection. That was the funny bit. <laughs> but I thought, yeah, that's quite, that is actually what lots of people think. Now, we're going to drift into a text that starts to talk about money. I say that because we need to be prepared for it. What is going to be said when we come to this little bit of the Bible where we're starting to talk about gifts and giving and money? Well, let's have a read of it. It's Philippians chapter 4 and verse 14. Uh, <coughs> Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in Thessalonica you sent help sent me help for my needs once and again not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit I've received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's in a Roman prison, is coming to the end of the letter, and in the final closing part of the letter, responds to the fact that in, um, in the messenger Epaphroditus, travelling from Philippi, came a gift to support him. One of the things that we just need to bear in mind is what it was like uh, in a Roman prison in those days, if you were, if you were in a Roman prison, uh, in fact in pretty much most of the ancient world, not just Roman prisons, in pretty much most of the ancient world, continuing through the Dark Ages in this country and into probably uh, around about the, uh, the late uh, 19th century, and including many other parts of the world today, if you were in prison, uh, you would die of starvation unless people from the outside provided for you. You were not in prison provided for by the, uh, by the prison authorities. You would die of starvation. And so Paul is in this Roman prison. And we saw last week that this church have found the opportunity, although they were stopped for a while, we read in verse uh, 10, that you have revived your concern for me. There was a period of time when they couldn't give and now they're able to give. We don't know why they couldn't give, but I would suggest to you that in a day of very slow communication, it was probably because they didn't know where Paul was. And then the news gets through, he's in a Roman prison in jail, uh, he's in a Roman prison in jail, and he's, he's therefore in need. And the immediate response of this church is, right, let's get some stuff out to him. Let's get some provisions out to him, what money, uh, food, whatever it might be. Let's make sure that we are supporting him in the situation that he is in. This is real life stuff, isn't it? 
And I think that's one of the great things about the Bible is very often we read it in brief, but behind it, when we piece together what's going on in the letter, we see, if you like, windows into real life. Uh, maybe your response down through the, the, the years has been, the Bible is, is uh, highbrow, well in some ways it's way beyond our understanding and there's complex parts of the Bible, but there's also parts of the Bible which when they, when they open up it is dealing with life in its reality. And here we see life in its reality. We see a man in need and we see a church responding is the story. <coughs> Paul has been travelling around. He's been establishing churches. He's been preaching in many different cities to cities that had never heard about Jesus. We do not live in that kind of situation. You just need to bear that in mind. We do not live in quite that kind of situation. We definitely live more so in a country that does not have the understanding of the Bible message that it once did, but we still have uh, 2,000 years of, of impact. Paul was going into places that had never heard of Jesus, and he was declaring Jesus as the Son of God, and as he did that, people were responding and the response of that was that, that their lives were changed. And we see that here as we read in verse 15, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, in the beginning of the gospel, what does that mean? Uh, does it mean uh, that the gospel began at some point later? Uh, than Jesus? No. What it means is that the beginning of the gospel for them was when he was with them. That was the, the starting point. That immediately for me raises a question that I want to address to you. And it's quite simply this. Has the gospel started in your life? Has the gospel started in your life? Because that is what has gone on for these uh, Philippian believers. He says, the gospel begins when I left Macedonia. I was there with you and it was, that's the beginning. Has it started for us? Has it started for you? Has it started for me? What does it mean for the gospel to start? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What is the gospel? The message of Jesus who died and gave his life so that those who believe in him by trusting in him in faith might receive life even though they deserve to die is one way of expressing the gospel. And that is, if you like, that is a truth that sits there as the gospel. But for these Christians, it began when they personally embraced it. It hit their lives. And they said, that is for me. That's the beginning of the gospel. So even though it began in strict sense, probably about 40 odd years or so earlier when Jesus did that work and it started to be declared, when it actually happened for them, it was the beginning. So here we see 
uh, the beginning of the gospel going on in the lives and the response is that as Paul left Macedonia, this church partnered with him. That's really quite an impressive thing. We might not gain the impact of that because we're 2,000 years later. We're just reading it as a brief comment. But what it actually meant was that this church in Philippi, for the rest of their time, were following, they, they, they weren't able to use instant communications. They, they were sending people. They were uh, keeping up with the news. They were uh, sending messengers, receiving messages, finding out where Paul was, collecting, gathering, uh, providing, sending it out. Very physical from a situation which might not have been one of great wealth. And yet they are so changed because of this gospel that has gone on uh, that they are doing that. I want to say that three things, therefore, as a result of that. First thing I want to say is that the, that our financial resources are probably the most effective indication of where our hearts are. Our financial resources are probably the most effective indication of where our hearts are. Secondly... I would say that uh, this is about securing treasures. And thirdly, I want to look at the, at the strange way in which that treasure is displayed in the Bible. So here we go. Look at what's happened. Financial resources are the most effective indication of where our hearts are. We can see 2,000 years later, by a few words where the Philippine church really were. Here they are, they're a church of people, and they're doing all they can to make sure that they're supporting Paul. They're partnering with him because they are concerned about the spread of the gospel. In fact, he says in verse 16, just a brief line, he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Even in Thessalonica, you sent uh, me help for my needs. What, what's the relevance of that? Here's the relevance. Paul left Philippi and travelled down to Thessalonica. Philippi was, um, was a, a kind of top-notch place to live. It was number two in the area in terms of Roman cities. Number one in the area was Thessalonica. Uh, and Paul leaves the, uh, a relatively prestigious city and goes to an even more prestigious city. And, and this church are concerned to support him when they are going somewhere, when he's going somewhere, which in, in that competitive environment of cities would have seemed an even better place. And yet for them, they, they were so concerned that they, how do we normally live? What we normally do is we want to. We want to succeed at the expense of others, don't we? That's how we normally behave. We, we do that in every situation in life. Uh, we, not, we want to achieve at the expense of others. We, we don't say it obviously, but uh, our career paths, we want to succeed at the expense of others. 
Uh, it's not a malicious expense of others. Uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, as we progress, we want, to, we want to move forward. We want to do those things. You might be in that situation where you're saying, yeah, I want that job, and I want that job at the expense of other people. And yet what this church have got into their heads is this. The gospel doesn't work like that. The gospel is not about something us receiving something at this, the expense of others. Rather, it is something that we want other people to have. And that's where their heart is. But he says, even in Thessalonica, well, that's one thing, it's a, going to a better city. But I think the main route is this. What does he say? You sent me support in Thessalonica once and again. Twice. In a relatively uh, committed way, you sent me support twice. <laughs> but even more amazing is Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks we read it in Acts chapter 17 in the space of three weeks their commitment was so much that they sent support twice 80 miles away to Thessalonica our, our, our financial resources <coughs> are the greatest indicator of where our hearts are consider the priorities in our lives because what the, this Philippian church had done is, and what had happened for them is the gospel had come into their lives and their lives had been shaken up they were no longer living in the way that they once did you, you know they, they never previously had any thoughts about the city of Thessalonica they hadn't previously had no thoughts <coughs> about spreading this message of Jesus. But when the gospel begins in them, suddenly it all changes. It just changes. And that is what happens. Now you might be sat thinking, I don't feel as if it's changing that much. I would say two things. Firstly, I would say this probably you will find, you'll be surprised at what other people see. You will be, you, if you have truly come to faith in Jesus, other people will see more than you see. You'll be changed more. Uh, but secondly, even that consciousness of where am I in my life? Is that beginning to start to take a grip on you? What's going on in my life and, and where am I? And you're finding that things that you once wanted to do are not as high a priority as they once were. You're surprisingly beginning to find that other things are taking a greater priority. That is the gospel taking root in our lives. And that's encouraging. And on the flip side, I want to challenge us. The gospel has to make that kind of impact in our lives. It has to shake us up. It has to reorientate us. It has to redirect uh, things that we were once committed to. We, we end up no longer committed to in the way that we once were. Our priorities change. If we claim Jesus as our saviour, but our priorities in life have just never changed, we're never being challenged, we're never being reorientated, we need to stop. 
and say, where am I? Why isn't my life being shaken up? Why aren't I beginning to feel uncomfortable? The, the gospel will do that. Why will the gospel do that? Why will Jesus coming into our lives shake us up? Because all of us, in different ways, need to be changed. And you know as well as I do that changing our lives is not a comfortable thing, is it? It is not an easy thing to change. We don't change. We can't change in our own strength. But when the power of God comes into our lives, we begin to find, he begins to put, we can say he begins to put a spiritual finger on issues in our life. And we begin to feel really uncomfortable. And we begin to be shaken and we begin to be adjusted little by little. Or maybe dramatically. But the gospel has to change. Jesus said this as he sent his disciples out. He said, fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is a big gift, isn't it? It is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches <coughs> and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's saying this. Jesus is saying this. We read that and we think it's all about just kind of a reckless abandon in life where we just give up everything and the sign of being a Christian is that we suddenly sell everything and we just give it away. It's not even close to that. It is way deeper than that. It is about a change in what we believe is going to protect us. And it's a change in what we believe is valuable. Jesus says, my Father is going to give you the kingdom. It's his pleasure to give you the kingdom. Are you going to carry on thinking that the things in this world are the most precious? Are you? That's what he's saying, isn't it? Are you going to carry on relying for, for comfort, for pleasure, for security, in the things that sit in a money bag? that rots away, that fails. He's saying, come on, the kingdom is at stake. That's what is yours. That's what is ours. Paul has been saying it right the way through this letter, hasn't he? He's been saying it again and again. Do you realize on the day of Christ, we are going to receive all of the riches of God. In fact, it's so secure, it's already ours. Now, shake your life up so that you live like that. This has just profound implications, doesn't it, in terms of where we are as a church. We've been talking about moving forward, and uh, we've been talking about our desire for what? This church to be important, 
for this church to be uh, seen. Rubbish. It's nothing to do with that. Our desire is this. That many more people would come to know Jesus. To enter into the gift and the pleasure and the privilege of being part of his kingdom. To become eternally worshippers of God. What a great thing. That's what we want. Now what we see here is that that, according to God's plan in this world, that is worked out through ordinary means. People come to faith in Jesus through ordinary means. Now I know that to come to faith in Jesus is a supernatural work that goes on by the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that. But how does that work? According to the way God has described in Jesus. How is that New Testament process going to work? Jesus sends out his disciples and says, just don't rely on, on money, just do good and, uh, and spread the message of the kingdom of Jesus. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because what he's saying is this. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is going to spread by ordinary people. Going and talking to ordinary people. That's how it spreads. That's how it moves from one to the other. By it being shared by us. Speaking, sharing our lives, living it out. That is remarkable. Because God could have chosen to do it a different way. He could have chosen to save his people by individually, directly speaking to everybody. He could have done that, but he hasn't. He said, I'm going to do it by ordinary ways. I'm going to send out people to go and speak. And people are going to come to faith by, by people listening to those people. But it also relies, doesn't it, by the ordinary means of you know, putting together a, a financial package to support this missionary who's in prison. In, in real terms, that's as ordinary a means as speaking, isn't it? God works through the ordinary to do the extraordinary. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he saves people, but he works it through in this world through ordinary ways. That is a remarkable thing because it invites us to be part of the privileged process of gathering together the kingdom of God. We see that as we move on to the next, uh, the next verse. We see in verse 17 it says this, Not that I seek the gift. You know, the gift isn't important to me, but... I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. You know, we said earlier, the Bible can be straightforward and the Bible can be complex. What is that talking about? What does that mean? It means that from Paul's perspective, the fact that he is in Rome, 
receiving support from this church in Philippi means that the gospel is spreading in Rome. He's sustained, he's kept. Uh, and there's people hearing about it because of the work that the church in Philippi are doing to support that work. In fact, we read, <coughs> we read in the next few verses that it's spreading right the way through, even reaching into Caesar's household. Why is it reaching into Caesar's household? Because Paul is kept and Paul is sustained in that place to be a spokesman for the Lord Jesus because the church at Philippi are doing ordinary stuff to send him and sustain him and keep it going. That's the way the church works. But at a deeper level, the work that that church in Philippi are doing is credited to them in the economy of heaven. It's exactly the same idea as Paul says earlier on where he says, um, I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche. Uh, I entreat you, Odia and Syntyche. Sorry, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy, he said, my joy and my crown. You, brothers, are my joy and my crown. In other words, the fact that you are part of the kingdom of Jesus is a great joy to me. It's my joy. I'm just delighted by that. I, I am, it's part of what it will be like to be in heaven and it will be considered wonderful and, and incredible and God's done that work but I will be thrilled to be there because of you. And what he's saying is exactly the same for this church. You know there's people here in Rome who are thrilled because you are doing this work and sustaining and you will see them in heaven. I want to ask, do we have that kind of big view? A big view of what our resources are in the, the economy of God. This isn't about this isn't about just you know keeping the money flowing and all of that rubbish. Not at all. It's about being privileged to be part of the work of God in this world. Saying we're part of something. And the treasure that we have is not the treasure for now, it's the treasure for eternity. You know what? You are my treasure. I am your treasure. We're going to be in eternity together. There's people who we don't even know, who by God's intricate mercy working out in this world, maybe in ways that we don't even understand, they're going to be in heaven because of things that have been done by you. They are your treasure. They are your joy. And you are somebody else's joy and somebody else's treasure. That's the picture that he's saying. Do you see, he's saying, that you are securing treasure for eternity. That's what's on the agenda. And that's why it's just so discouraging when the picture that is presented uh, is that, you know, roll in the money. Let's get lots of money in. Let's get a, a, another kind of call center operating so that the, the TV channel can get more people phoning in and more money rolling in. 
Do you know what Jesus said when he saw a widow putting two little coins into the offering? Compared to those who were able to give so much, she's blessed. Because she has given out of her poverty. Her heart is in the right place. They might have been able to give bags more. But she's showing her heart. Are we in that place? Do we have that kind of perspective? And you might say, well, I'm not sure whether I'm comfortable with this idea of, the, of giving. You might not be part of the church. You might not even be a Christian. And you might think, this sounds really strange, this whole idea of giving in this way. Well, it might seem strange until we realize the foundation on which it happens. And the foundation on which we give, and here's the paradox, is the giving that we, uh, that we make. It is on the basis of somebody who was stripped of way more treasure than we could ever imagine. Paul says it in verse chapter 2 of this very letter. He says, you know the foundation of how we should live is Jesus. And in his astounding, privileged position in heaven, where he was surrounded with more riches than we could ever imagine, and all riches were his, he did not hold on to any of that. He was stripped of all of that richness. He came into this world stripped. I mean, Paul is sat in a Roman prison and he might feel as though he, he's in poverty compared to where he once was. It's just nothing compared to Jesus. From the riches of heaven to the poverty of humanity, he came into this world stripped of that and yet at the same time <laughs> he remained holy, the Son of God. It wasn't recognized. He wasn't worshipped in the way that he was. He gave himself, stripped himself of that and came into this world. In fact, we read in Philippians 2 and verse 6, he says... Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How stripped was Jesus? But, there's a follow-on to that verse. The story does not end there. Because it goes on to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the, the, the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus was stripped and came to, ha to earth and was crucified but then received again the acclamation and more in heaven. 
He is exalted again. And that's what happens for those who are stripped (laughs) in God's perspective. We let go of our securities. We let go of what we rely on. And in trusting in him, in in letting go and in serving him, by, by letting go of our resources... By letting go of our securities and saying, I no longer trust in myself. I trust in him in every aspect of my life. I live in him. God never, never leaves us shortchanged. Because the the desire of the Father is to give us the kingdom. Every time we, we are reduced... Every time we give, every time we let go of more of ourselves, we are realizing this, that my reliance is on him, and in him I will receive more than I can ever imagine. That's why Paul is saying to this church, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God will supply all your needs. What do I need most? What do you need most? Things for a few years or eternal security in Christ? What do we need the most? He says, my God will supply all your needs according to the riches that are in Christ for all of eternity. He's already there. And in entrusting in him, we receive too.